Well, it's good to be home again. Had a great time. It's my third trip, and every time I go, I think I learn more. And uh, such a blessing to be with our students. And, um, you know, we just have a treasure in Clayton. Um, next time I go, I'm going to have Clayton. I'm just going to go with Clayton because he is just, he took us this time to uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And I've been there two times before, basically. Uh, Bookman kind of says, well, here's where it happened, but, you know, it's pretty gaudy, so look around, and we'll talk about it later. We had the, David and uh, Mike and I got the private tour with, with Clayton after a couple of years of study, and it was an amazing place to be. But there's so many things. I'm going to share you just a little bit of what the blessing of going to a new place this year, Shechem, and um, great application to Scripture. But it's always good to be home. We missed you guys, and we're glad to be back. We brought back with us a good cold, so if you'd like to share, talk to Clayton or me. We got it from Don, so maybe you picked it up already, but we're getting through it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, I pray that the word would go forth in power this morning, that it would touch our lives. Lord, we just thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, what a joy to be part of what you're doing in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be instruments in your hand to spread the worship of the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start in the end of chapter 4 where we left off last time because I think it puts us in context for these first few verses, the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffered with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, Dr. Bookman again emphasized with us, every rabbi is not much of a rabbi if he doesn't have disciples. And so he's going to teach his disciples, but the people are there to listen also. The key verse in this whole Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, is verse 20. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he's going to talk about here is life in the kingdom. He's going to describe the characteristics and the beatitudes of those who belong. These aren't things you do in order to get into the kingdom because it would be impossible. Because we have partaken of the life of the king, these are things that are in our life. This is our spiritual DNA. He describes the character of the citizens of the kingdom. He begins and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you 
and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we think of government, what is the purpose of government? You ask an American, they may have a longer list than the Bible actually points out. Well, they need to provide health care, and they need to provide education, and, and, and uh, welfare if you need it, and social security, and all this list. But basically, government, the purpose of government is to secure your borders so you know where your culture is, and to protect you and to give you justice and laws so people know how, what the lines are to get along with one another inside that culture. Very simple. But if one thing points out, you know, if you go back to Noah, every one of the descendants of the son of Noah have ruled over the earth. And there's only one ruler that will ever bring peace, and that is Jesus Christ. Every, every, every part of that family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and have all had the opportunity from their families to have world leadership, and it's all failed. So Jesus comes, and he has been healing everyone, and the people are excited about this kind of government where there's not just health care, but there's healing, and there's plenty of food, so there's going to be security. And if anybody in the army gets killed, you just heal them, and they come back to life, so you have this army that can't die because what they think the problem is is the externals. All human government rules from the outside. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 13 that we should be good citizens, that those that rule over us, those policemen, they carry not the sword in vain or their handguns in vain, that they're there not for the righteous, but for the evil workers, to protect people that are righteous. And we're to submit to those governments. We're to be good citizens. And every one of us, if we're good citizens, we vote our conscience, hoping as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, and praying for our leaders that we might have peace, that we might be able to continue to share the gospel. But folks, our hope is not in human government. And how about you, but every election cycle, there's some excitement and there's some disappointment, isn't there? Because we just naturally hope that something's going to happen to fix this mess. So Jesus comes, and not only does he healing. And during this time, they said there were no sick people. Everyone that came got healed. And John writes at the end of his gospel, if all the stories of, of his healing and his ministry, not even the pages in, in all the world could hold all the stories of Jesus' healing. But not everybody that got healed are part of the kingdom. Toward the end of his ministry, he heals 10 lepers. Only one returns to worship. Only one. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, where are the other nine? So people were enjoying the externals, but they didn't think they needed a heart change. What God desires is to rule from people's hearts. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah, and he says, I'm going to write my laws upon their heart. So it's internal. It's grace. Now, most of us are good citizens because we don't want to go to jail, so we make sure we keep the laws. We don't speed too much, right? And, and we try to be good neighbors, 
Because there's laws that punish evildoers. But the difference for those that are in the kingdom and God's rule is he rules from the inside. When we read these beatitudes, these are supernatural things. So you can't try to do these things in the flesh. See, you can't come to the place that you understand you're destitute spiritually unless the Holy Spirit shows you that. The old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The second verse says it was grace that taught my heart to fear. That was supernatural. That God even showed you that you had a problem. It wasn't you going to Sunday school enough that you got enough information that eventually you said, oh, yeah, I think I want to follow Christ. You have to be lost before you can be saved. And that was God's grace in your life. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, like when God said light shall shine out of darkness, that's the one that's shown in your heart personally to give you the knowledge of the grace of God in the face of Christ. That was God that did that work, that reached down personally and chose you. So he says, blessed or happy. And that word happy is, is a word that wasn't used for humans. It was just a word that was used about the gods or people that died. Because it's unaffected by circumstance. Paul uses it when he talks about Jesus. And he says, Paul applies this adjective to God according to the gospel of the glory of the happy God. When he preached in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, and he's describing the unknown God. He said, I want to tell you about that God. Because he made all things. He caused all things to be made. He doesn't need anything. God doesn't need you and I to become complete and be happy. He is completely happy in himself. But it says, blessed are those that mourn, those that are poor in spirit, that are bankrupt spiritually. And the idea is not just a beggar, but a beggar that's reaching out. He can't. His hope is only what someone else can give him, and he's so ashamed, he hides his own face. That's bankrupt spiritually. Only God does that in our heart. Happier the bankrupt spiritually. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the invitation to the kingdom. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, you want to be part of the kingdom? You must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. You identify with the Savior, with his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Recognizing it's not just adding religion to your life, but recognizing that all that you have done up till now is worthless. Is worthless until you come to Christ. When you talk about those who are poor in spirit and then those who mourn, that's, that's supernatural, people that mourn over sin. The world doesn't mourn over sin. They justify it in their own lives. They compare themselves to other people. They don't mourn over sin. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be satisfied. That's something the world hungers and thirsts for is righteousness. What is righteousness? That's the desire to be right with God, right decisions, right actions in our following Jesus Christ. That's what we desire. That's what believers desire in their life. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. That's what we do as children of the kingdom. We're always looking to make peace. The Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ. 
going about to share the worship of the one true God, to be that ambassador that brings Christ and light into darkness. Then it says, happy are those who are persecuted. How does that make you happy? Paul and Silas, when they were beaten and were in the Philippian jail at night, in stocks, were singing praises at midnight because they were so overcome with joy to be kind of worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And you say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. I guarantee you, when it happens, as you are faithful and you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, God knows how in his Holy Spirit, by his grace, to turn your dials to amazing joy in spite of the circumstance. You see, this kingdom is supernatural. It's not just religion. It's not just a doctrinal statement. It's partaking of the life of Christ. That's why it's different than any other government. Because Jesus rules from our hearts, not just from his laws. And he starts with our heart before he even starts about what's required of disciples. Because we serve out of hearts of love and thanksgiving, not out of duty and obligation. Apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute, no matter what his education, wealth, social status, accomplishments, or religious knowledge. To perceive that there are no saving resources in themselves, and they can only beg for mercy and grace. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. That describes the person that desires the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus came and he offered, and he gets to the end of this Sermon on the Mount and he has an invitation. And he says this, narrow is the way, hard is the great gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and most people are going that way. They just want to be satisfied externally. They just want circumstantial peace. It's supernatural to desire the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, even that faith to believe is a gift from God, not of works lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. It's what Jesus offers us. But why this great happiness because we just don't get under the rule of the king. We're part of the kingdom. It's our kingdom. You see, when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior, you get his life. He adopts you into his family. You have his spiritual DNA, so the kingdom is yours. In John 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, remember they show up the next day to get a free meal? And so he gives them this theology. Unless... You eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And what happened? The people said, ah, we don't, we don't want that. What was he telling them? When you eat physical food, you get the life of the physical food. No matter how good a health food you eat, one day you're going to die. But you eat the life of that physical food. So it was a plant, it was an animal, that, that, that uh, 
organism had life, and so you get their life, and you have physical life for a while. And so you need partaker of a different kind of life to live forever, and that is receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. You get his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We get Jesus. That's the kingdom. Now, King Yahweh desired to rule his people Israel. So he gave them the laws, and in Exodus, he called all the elders of Israel, and they got to have a meal with the God of heaven. And they got to see his feet on that sapphire throne room, and it says, and he didn't kill them. It was an amazing thing. And you would think having that experience then, that external experience, they say, now we'll be faithful. Moses goes up on the mountain before he even gets down. They've already gone into idolatry. They forget. The old gospel hymn says, born to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We need something different than external experiences to help us, don't we? We need a new heart. We need somebody to take out the old heart and put in a heart that desires God. We need the life of Jesus Christ. So he gave them their laws. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses comes to the end of his life. And remember, God told him he can't go into the promised land because he was disobedient. He struck the rock the second time. But he took him in and gave him a view. I don't know if in that view he got to see these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. But put that picture up, would you? We got to go there this week. And I want to show you this because what Moses told him to do, see, if you look on your right, that's Mount Ebal. And on left is Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal is the Mount of Cursing. And Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessing. And there's probably a mile down where we here at the front. It was probably a mile between those, those uh, mountains there. They look kind of like the Sherman Hills, don't they? They're big, but you can walk up them. And so Moses said, what I want you to do at this place called Shechem, once you get in the land, I want you to take half the, pri- half the tribes and put on Mount Ebal and half the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And I want the Levitical priests, the choir, to get down there in the middle. And I want them to sing out all the blessings. And when they sing out the blessings, then I want everybody on Mount Gerizim, all the people. Now think about this. This is a one and a half million Jews. You split them up. That's, you know, 750,000 people on each side. Now I know when we get 30,000 down here, my house is two miles away. And we're having a good day down here at Memorial Stadium. I can hear the cheering at my house two miles away. Can you imagine if that was a million and a half people? And, and Moses wants to make an impact. Says when you get in the land and God begins to bless you, I want you to go to this place. And then when the Levites read about the curses and the warnings not to depart from God, I want the people on Mount Ebal to say Amen. We hear you, God. We agree. We'll do it. And Joshua took a godly generation into the land of promise. At the end of Joshua's life, he calls the people back to this place at Shechem. And I don't know if he ever put them up on the mountain like Moses wanted, but he set up a stone. Show the next picture. And there's a couple of pictures I want to show you. This is amazing. See that stone? It doesn't look like very much. 
They found that stone. That is the stone that Joshua set up. Now, when they found it, it was probably close to 30 feet tall, but they found it, then they normally find big rocks, they break them up, and they start to break it up, and one of the archaeologists said, wait, wait, stop. Show the next picture. You can see a little bit how big it is. There's David and Zach. This thing was huge. Joshua read all the law and the promises and the warnings to the people, and he said, now choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he said, I want you to know something. This stone has heard the words. King Yahweh is here to rule you, and here's what his kingdom is all about. And they said, oh, we're going to serve the Lord. And they served the Lord till Joshua and his generation died. And then what did they do? Everybody did what they wanted. Kind of like America today. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They all had their own little standards. They forgot that they made promises. Because that's what we do. And they go through the time of the judges and there's this cycle of sin and paganism and then suffering and captivity. And they cry out to God and they repent. God restores them all the way through the judges. Finally get to Samuel, the last judge. And they say, you know what? We want a king like all the other nations. And God says to Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But he gave them a king. Now, I think they probably looked at it backwards. They probably thought, hey, listen, the rest of these people, they keep conquering us and they don't worship our God. See, at that time, they believed there were still many gods. They just had one God. And theirs was pretty good. They were called henotheists. They, they, they believed in all the gods. They just happened to have this one God, Yahweh, that took care of them when they behaved. But I think their thought was, well, if we just get a king, their kings secure their borders. They, they take care of them. We want a king like that. I don't know if they're thinking King Yahweh was too hard or what, but they just wanted something they could see. And so God gave them Saul. And Saul won some victories, and then he failed. And then David, and David had some victories, and then he failed. And every king, most of the kings of Israel were a failure. There's no hope in human government. And you get to the very peak of Israel's kingdom, the very peak where Solomon has ruled, and he's made Israel so rich that silver's like stones in the street. But at the same time, he brought the false gods of all his wives in, and God told Solomon, so I'm going to take the, the throne from you and your family. You're just going to have one tribe left, and I'm going to put your servant Jeroboam over. So what did why Solomon try to do? Kill Jeroboam. So Solomon died. He didn't kill Jeroboam. God tells him his plan, and just like Saul, the wicked king before his father, he thought he could thwart God's plans. And so his son Rehoboam, now remember, this is the peak of the kingdom. Rehoboam comes, and he comes to this place again to Shechem. By this stone, there was a big oak there. Important place to Israel, and he's going to be crowned king there. So Jeroboam comes down with Israel, and they all gather to crown this king, and he just asks him a question. Now listen, life's been kind of hard. God warned the children of Israel, when you want a king, they're going to take your sons and your daughters to serve, or they're going to take your crops, they're going to have all kinds of taxes so they can mount their armies. And they say, oh, no, we understand that. But things got tough under Solomon. Even though there was great wealth, there was great taxes. As I said, Jeroboam came and he said, you know, the people, we've been, we've been laboring hard and the 
the yoke's been heavy. Are you going to lighten that a little bit? Got the temple built, you got all these things done. Are you going to lighten that a little bit? He says, give me three days. And so the people go away and they come back and he gets counsel in those three days and he talks to the older men and they say, listen, the people are right. This has been a heavy burden. You got a lot of projects your dad's done. You need to lighten up. You need to tell the people that. Now, when you think about the book of Proverbs, it was written by Solomon to his son, Rehoboam. And Dr. Bookman's always saying, I think he skipped class because he didn't have a lot of wisdom. He was just kind of a fat, spoiled king's son. And so he got with his young buddies, and God moved him this way because God had told Solomon, because of your wickedness, I'm going to take most of the tribes from you. So they come back in three days, and he gives them the wisdom of the young men. And they say, listen, you tell the people that your little finger is going to be fatter than your daddy's thigh. I'm not sure that's what I'd want for a goal in my life, but that's what, uh, that's what they said. And he whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. And his yoke was heavy. I'm going to make it heavier. What was the result? Every man to his tent. The kingdom was divided. Now look at the comparison. Jesus comes in Matthew 20, 11, 28. He says, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest to your souls. What a difference. The kingdom of man brings all of its burdens and Jesus won us that peace at the cross in his own blood. That powerful verse of scripture I just never get over. You probably have it memorized because you hear it all the time here. But Revelation chapter 5, or 1 verse 5. The king of the kings of all the earth, stooped down and washed us from our sins in his own blood. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, and that's to take back the government of the earth, take back the title deed of the earth. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, here's the deal. One day, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to reign from the throne of David, physically here on the earth, and he's going to have a perfect, he's going to change a lot of things. But the Bible says we can reign in life, Romans chapter 5, verse 17, through Jesus Christ because he has offered us his life. When you partake of his life, those springs of water flow out from the inside. That life comes from the inside. There's no more struggling to try to be good. He has justified you, set you free from sin, and he has given you his life, which gives you a new want to to please him. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 5, it says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Isn't that something? Jesus knows everyone that are his, and his name will be on our forehead. We belong to him. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have never seen him, you love him. 
and you've never seen him, but you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's no more striving to try to please God from the outside, but he has saved you. There's no more externals that will ever please him. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah that all of our righteousness, what we do for God, are like filthy, leprous rags that we bring. But the wrath of God was poured out upon us. And before he died, he finished that work for us. And what he desires is that we be one with him. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 21, his prayer to the Father was that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom is theirs. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you have given us the kingdom, that you have, you have called us to salvation and to adoption as sons, that we can come to you and cry, Abba, Father, Papa, because you've made us part of your family. And that one day we'll rule and reign with you. Those things are too high for us to even think about. But Lord, though we've never seen you, Lord, we love you. Lord, give us the strength to walk and identify with you no matter what. That we might be found faithful as lights in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.